Investing in your business can be a wonderful way to grow wealth and live the life you want. That's what I'm doing. But investing in someone else's business can be even better. In my opinion, this is the best way to generate true passive income streams. Through ETFs or exchange-traded funds, you can buy a basket of shares in different companies in one trade. BetaShares offers Australia's broadest range of ETFs, including the Global Cashflow Kings ETF, ticker symbol CFLO, which lets you invest in 200 companies with high levels of free cash flow, such as Visa and Costco, in one ETF. You can learn more about CFLO and the BetaShares fund range by visiting betashares.com.au. Read the PDS and TMD on the website and consider if the fund is right for you. BetaShares Capital Limited is the issuer. Welcome to RASC's Australian Business Podcast, a series for entrepreneurs who dare to leave the world in a better place and get paid while we do it. This podcast will make you a better business owner, investor, founder, or entrepreneur. If you want to start a business or already have one, please subscribe to the series or share it with your friends, business partner, or colleagues. And don't forget to consider taking our free business course, which includes heaps of templates for creating business plans, HR documents, employee files, all of my software recommendations, and more. The course is completely free and available via the link in your podcast player. Okay, let's get into the episode. David, thank you for taking some time to join me on the show. Great to be here. I've listened to many interviews that either you or Joseph have done about judo, about the culture, about the business. In addition to the book Black Belt, um, I was in here recording in Sydney yesterday uh, with some friends who are accountants and we were talking about some of the best books that have been written in Australia on startups and business. And it's a rarity to find a book of such high quality written by Australians on the topic of business, entrepreneurship and these types of things. So it's a real treat. Uh, and as we usually do, we'll do a giveaway for anyone who is interested. We will have something on our social media platforms where you can get a copy of the book too. So thank you firstly for writing it. And uh, I think the for anyone that hasn't heard of your name or even come across Judo Bank, uh, we have a lot of small businesses, medium businesses that listen to this podcast, mm-hmm. a lot of entrepreneurs as well, founders, these types of people. Can you tell us the genesis, the origin story of Judo? I'm going to have so many questions off the back of this, but just to set the scene for the rest of the conversation. Yeah, sure. Really, jo- my co-founder, Joseph, and I um, had worked in mainstream banking for 35, 30 to 35 years. Uh, myself, Macquarie, ANZ, NAB, uh, Joseph was Lloyd's, City, CIBC, Woodgundy, or Scrooge Vickers, uh, and NAB. And we'd worked together for perhaps uh, 10 to 15 years, both at ANZ and then at NAB. At NAB, Joseph was running the business bank. He was the group executive in charge, mm. and I was running a part of that for him. And you know, sort of come 2014, 15, or 2014, there was a change in CEO at NAB. And, you know, Joseph parted the company with NAB and went and spent uh, sort of 12 months doing a, uh, a course in or working on his, I think it was his Masters of Chinese Contemporary mm. Studies in Ningbo in China. But we stayed very closely in touch. And we'd both come to the view um, that... And that was something we'd come to over time, that the, you know, the the banking of small business in Australia, there had been a market failure, mm. that the oligopoly that was the four major banks was fundamentally not delivering to small business what it needed to deliver, certainly not the relationship proposition that historically 10 to 15 years ago had been the centrepiece of banking small business in this country. And so we began really talking about, you know, is there an opportunity to create some kind of challenger to the oligopoly just dedicated to servicing small business in the way that we felt passionate about, which was going back to relationship banking of small business as it used to be done. Where the small business has a banker that they know, they have their mobile number, the banker knows them, knows their family in many cases, knows their history. Uh, and is available and empowered to make decisions and can do so quickly. Um, And also that when they make those decisions, that they don't simply say, well, how much is your house worth? Perhaps the most commonly experienced um, uh, 
objection that small business has is they walk into a bank and they say, here's my business, this is what I do, here's my track record, here's my success. And they go, don't have time for that. How much is your house worth? We'll enter you against that. Mm. Whereas we wanted to go back to you know what we called the four C's, which was the character, right, as well as the cash flow in the business and the debt that it will support, as well as the capital that was already invested in the business, and then collateral kind of as the final C. So a more holistic assessment of a company rather than simply the asset value that sits behind typically a house. Um, and so we... You know, we talked around that for a long time, for years probably. And then uh, in 2015, uh, Joseph had, uh, was coming back to Australia from the from China uh, and I felt it was time to move on from NAB. And so we got together and started building Judo in 2015, really, as I said, to go back to that relationship proposition to small business as we felt it had to be done, it should be done. This is a more of a personal decision, mm. a question, sorry. How did you make that decision? So how did you personally make the decision to take the risk on a business when you have this established career in banking? Mm. Um, well, in a way, there's no better time to do it, right? So we were both in our 50s when we made this decision to do this. So, you know, having had a, a long career in finance, you have a level of financial security that allows you to do this. Certainly at a different level that if you're just starting off in life and you've got a young family and so on. Um, Secondly, I think it just gets to a point where you're working inside a big bureaucracy, mainstream banking, and you can see that it, it is continuing to move further and further away from, you know, an appropriate position in terms of its offering. I mean, in many ways, you saw this in the Royal Commission, you know, you're working inside organisations that the commissioner himself were progressively or had lost their social licence to operate. Certainly the antipathy in the community towards them, the antipathy from the small business sector towards the mainstream banks and their offering and how much they were taken for granted and how much they were making out of them. There was just a point, I'm not sure what the trigger was particularly, but I think there was, for me... Uh, a natural point to step out of mainstream banking, work with somebody that I knew well, that was very complementary to me, we're very complementary to each other, with a very shared vision for what we could build and a very commonly held belief as to the purpose of why we were building it. And so it was really the culmination of a whole range of different things that came together and at just one point you go, well, that's it. Mm. Do you know of anyone else, any other business that not nearly the scale of what you have achieved that have a founder or founders in their 50s to have done this in Australia? Um, Because I I cannot think of any. No, not that immediately come to mind. It's certainly the case overseas. So if you have a look, for example, in the US at the fastest growing uh, area of entrepreneurship in a demographic sense, Mm. it's in the 55 pluses. Yeah, Um, so it's certainly happening. Uh, Less so in Australia. It doesn't mean it's not happening. I'm just not kind of particularly aware of it. But um, I've heard that actually. I've heard similar remarks. Yeah, well, I mean, I think in many ways you see in the book that we talk about ageism, right? And we feel incredibly strongly about the opportunities for those that are in the, you know, the, the final one or two legs of their career that taking an entrepreneurial step is perhaps the most rewarding part of their career. It certainly has been for me, and I think I would, I'm sure I can speak for Joseph in saying the same thing. It's been incredibly rewarding, incredibly challenging. The growth that it offers you both in a personal and professional and commercial context is just of a different scale that you can get in than working in mainstream. Um So I'm not aware, but certainly hopeful, and part of the reason for the book is to encourage those that have a bit of that entrepreneurial flame flickering to actually take that step Mm. because it is doable. I think one of the things we feel is that, you know, in many ways the last 10 years of entrepreneurship 
in multiple forms in Australia and particularly in the Western world, around the world, has actually been a, a real purple patch. You know, there's been more entrepreneurs, there's been more disruptors, there's been more challenges, you know, those that are really cutting into parts of different kinds of value chains around the world. And we think the next 10 years will be even better, mm. right? Um, the amount of capital that's going to be available to back really experienced, capable uh, entrepreneurs um, will be as, you know, even stronger. And the degree to which technology can continue to really amplify great business models, really support and really allow scaling of great business models. So we think it's been a great 10 years and the next 10 will be better. So we want to encourage people that have mm. that flame kind of already flickering somewhere. Mm. Have you had many people in the 50s demographic reach out to you since the book or mm. the business? Many, yeah, many. And what do you think holds people back in that demographic if they have this idea? Are there any kind of maybe limiting beliefs that they may have? Uh, yes. I think, well... I guess there's probably a macro and a micro answer to that. At a macro level, I think Australia is an incredibly ageist society. Uh, one of the, if not the most ageist society in the Western world. Now, I mean, there was a report put out, which we talk about in the book briefly, in 2021 by Australia's Age Discrimination Commissioner, Kay Patterson. She said, you know, the... Um, Age-related discrimination is perhaps the most pervasive, misunderstood and socially accepted form of discrimination in Australia, far, far ahead of sexism and racism. They're not exactly her words, but that was very much the message. Uh, and I think that's true. So there is a degree to which, you know, those in their 40s and 50s or late 40s and 50s and 60s are not necessarily... Um, encouraged by the system, for want of a better word, to really make that step out. Whereas actually in many ways there isn't a better time. Mm. I mean, we talked about having the financial security to do these kind of things, but the depth of experience you have is just on a different planet than if you're in your 20s or 30s, just by dint of mm. time. Uh, if I think about financial services, You've been through credit cycles. You've been through liquidity cycles. You've seen products that come and go and work and don't work. You're a great mentor for those that are young and coming up. So I think at a macro level, the system typically does not encourage that. Um, at a micro level, there can be a whole range of different reasons. You know, that's a very personal thing. Sure. Uh, there is risk associated with it, and it is definitely not for everybody. But for those that have that flickering, it is doable. Mm. I've recently have had a lot of so this is my own anecdotal mm. uh, sample size, very small uh, feedback. A lot of women who have had children and are looking to kind of reignite that spark, like you yeah. said, uh, to to take on more entrepreneurial endeavors. So where they may, for example, think, well, I could go back into my career that I had before or yep. this, I could use this opportunity to find that purpose in my new career or my new passion and, and take that. And I think we'll get to it in a minute, but from my understanding, the way judo is talked about is it's not a neobank, it's not a technology business, it's a relationship business, it's a mm. banking business. But you mentioned before that technology is going to, make, is going to accelerate like innovation mm -hmm entrepreneurship and we've seen that more recently with lots of new technologies as well in from where i see that seems like a barrier that has been pulled down rapidly yeah. to enable those that maybe didn't grow up with programming didn't grow up with the stereotypical silicon valley-esque you know background yeah to go and try these things absolutely yeah absolutely uh, uh it is one of the huge global barriers or the barriers between countries uh, or between markets that has come racing down. I mean, you see great Australian success stories like Canva. I mean, that is a fantastically flexible technology product. It happens that it was born in Australia, mm. but that's now you know a truly global product. It doesn't matter where you're based. 
Um, and so tech, that, that's just one example, and there are dozens of those kinds. And so, yeah, I think technology is a key enabler and accelerant of potential entrepreneurial endeavour mm. in all of the years to come. Mm. And I see a lot of, as someone who I describe myself as a rookie programmer, uh, a lot of low-code tools, a lot of, you know, things, applications we've seen, obviously, the emergence of GPT and mm-hmm. artificial intelligence, language models, et cetera, solve those technical problems for people, maybe even if they're just basic problems, and enable them to automate a service in their business or automate a service at large, which is um, which is a game-changer for them. It saves money, increases, as you said, it's accelerant. Um, and I, I, I'm curious why you don't describe judo as a technology business. So a lot of people would have this association's perception that to be a challenger bank Mm -hmm. going up against the the mighty big four and other banks as well, that the only way to do it is to be a technology business. Mm. Well, so technology is absolutely fundamental to judo. I mean, Mm. without question, but You know, over the course of the last five or six years, when there was the growth of what was called the fintech sector, Mm. I'm generalising, but the substantial majority of fintechs were driven by the tech end of fintech. Mm. We came from the other end. We came from the banking end, from the financial end. And, you know, we our our purpose was to be the best SME bank in Australia and to progress that to becoming a truly world-class SME bank. And for us, that revolves around that relationship proposition that I talked about at the very start. That sits at the heart of what Judo is. So our offering to the market is about a deep relationship with a banker that's empowered, that can turn things around really quickly, that takes a holistic view of the company and so on that is then underpinned by technology. It is not led by technology. Technology is hugely important to us. It allows efficiencies in the operational process, in the delivery process, uh, in the data process and so forth. So, of course, all of that underpins it. But we want it to be known as relationship proposition underpinned by cutting-edge tech Mm. as opposed to the reverse, Mm. where many people that led fintech companies that were tech-led were somewhat absent the fin, mm. so to speak. Yeah. Uh, Which is so, quite common, actually, yeah, in the businesses yeah. that I deal with. It's yes. quite common. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so it is important to us, but, you know, we've always stayed very true to that central purpose. Mm. I was actually watching a video this morning. Um, I can't remember the title of the video. Something like, the, something like Judo Difference or something like this. Mm-hmm. And it was just a a behind-the-scenes look at what actually happens and the purpose of the organization. And one of the segments featured a one of the, the business bankers that you have, and he was saying that in the past at a different bank that he'd worked with, the number one thing he wanted to do was go and speak with clients. That's all he wanted to do in his job is just go and speak with clients. But he couldn't because the tech didn't allow him to go out and do that because there was so much he had to do before he got on the road that it just wasn't worth it. So he just ended up on the phone mm. and just sitting in an office. Uh, and that, for me, was a perfect illustration of what you were saying before about we're putting the relationship first. You're not going to build the same relationship if you're only able to spend a little bit of time because you're solving all the other technical exactly. debt in the background. Exactly. Yeah. And that was when we, you know, when we wrote the book. One of the things that we talked about was not only that relationship proposition, but our proposition to employees the employee value proposition, actually Mm. unpacking that. How do you attract the right people? How do you retain them? How do you motivate them? You know, what is your difference when you're asking people to come across? And it was, you know, it's one of the pieces of advice that we wanted to really try and enshrine clearly in the book was being really clear on what that is. So, for example, in the judo case, elements of that were you get to spend more time with your clients Right, you have one logon, not twenty-five logons. Mm. Um, you have efficient processes. You have the delegated authority to actually make decisions. You don't have to kind of throw it up into the ivory tower and wonder when it's going to come back down. 
uh, and that you can do things quickly and you can be responsive and you can actually go and spend time with the client and actually walk the floor of the factory and actually understand the fruit packing business, right, and the, the need for forklifts and the need to acquire the warehouse next door and so on. Um, so, yeah, I think the the ability to be able to be present with your clients, have time with them, is actually allowing bankers to do what they love doing. Mm. Uh, and, you know, going back to the book, the having a clear employee value proposition that's unpacked and thought through and has multiple dimensions is super important for any young company. We'll get to the cultural aspects of the business in just a moment, but I'm curious, and I just confirmed this with you off air, that you and Joseph did used to meet up in a pub to talk Mm. about your idea for judo. But I'm curious, which part of that included it becoming a billion-dollar unicorn within a, within a few years uh well yes we did we we um because we worked to get together for a long time before judo you know we used to catch up often on a friday afternoon up at the Greengate pub on the north shore in sydney in Kalara, and instead of doing a download over the of the week in the office you could have a couple of beers while you did that hmm. and the you know the conversation about judo well wasn't called judo in those days, but the conversation about the progressive loss of social license by the majors and the prospect of creating, you know, an alternative, you know, just kind of gradually emerged from that conversation and, you know, accelerated in 2015. Um, At what point did it (laughs) talk about becoming, and I don't think the word unicorn was ever... (laughs) was ever uttered, but we were very clear that to be able to build what we wanted to build in a truly scalable way to make a difference, you needed to do it as a bank. Hmm. So we looked at different ways we might bring this proposition to market, but uh, it was very clear to us, having done that work, that actually the only real answer was to do it as a bank. And once you do it as a bank, given the the capital you have to carry, we were always going to have to raise, you know, up to a billion and a half dollars worth of capital to kind of get to that uh, point that you become self-generative of capital um, and sustain your own growth. So we knew what was ahead of us, you know, but I think both of us had sort of casual lunches or dinners with people and they said, you've got to raise how much capital? <laughs> really? Um, but we we did it, you know, and uh, we did the five rounds of capital raising as a private company. And then the uh, the sixth was in effect the IPO. Mm. Uh, uh, when we stepped into the room before you mentioned, we talked about the co-founder model mm-hmm. and how some businesses, and maybe this is a, a VC myth or something like this, mm-hmm. where it's ideal to have two, so therefore everyone should have two, um, but. You mentioned that in some instances, businesses are formed by two founders being almost forced together. Yes. Can you maybe describe how that was different for you and Joseph? Sure. So, I mean, we we began building Judo because of a commonality of vision, mm. right? And so there was huge levels of commonality. In many ways, we're very complementary. We've got different skills. We've had different experiences through our through our careers, um, but that's a good thing, right? Given that commonality of vision, but difference in experience. Now, there's commonality experience, but there's also areas of difference. Um, th- when people talk about the co-CEO models, often they're skeptical of them, and often that's because you know two co two CEOs have been brought together from other companies and sort of pressed together, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, and that more often than not doesn't really work. And whereas with us it was different, right? We were together from day one based on that common vision, a very clear common sense of purpose, complementary skills. And it worked really well. I mean, in that the sum of the parts, well, the, the whole was greater than the sum of the parts, you know, as we, we talk about at length in the book. And when you're going and raising capital, around the world and you're doing that three or four times a year, sitting across the table from an investor, um, you know, one of you 
can be leading the conversation and the other one's just observing how it's going and what's being said and what's not being said and are we delivering the message clearly enough? You know, there's huge value just in that mm. little setting of having the two of you and then you kind of critique each other's, you know, delivery or clarity of message or whatever. And then, you know, we'd, we'd you know, you could debate any particular kind of key agenda item for the company and that, you know, one plus one equals three in terms of the level of creativity and insight that you can get when that partnership works well. Mm. I watched a, I think it was like a trans-Tasman summit or something that you did during COVID, mm-hmm. a remote presentation, and the two of you were being asked questions and it was it was quite unique in that the questions may have been directed at one of you and then it was thrown back to the other to, to add anything on it. It was very little added on because the other one, mm. like it was either you or Joseph had filled in so well and it was like you're singing from the same songbook you've both got it you've been doing it for a long time um which is very special as well and i think it just goes to show like you were very clear about what you were doing you're very Mm. clear about the messaging very clear about the value proposition and now if we switch to the cultural aspects one of the things that seems to resonate for me as a small business owner is when i i have a family trust that holds shares in Mm. the company that i run right Mm -hmm. It's very typical in Australia. Yep. But when I went to one of the big banks thinking that they would be an expert in this, I had to make an appointment on a Saturday because the business banker wasn't available on the weekend, which was uh, during the week, which is a bit annoying for me. I tried to have separation for work and home life. Mm. Went there. They didn't know how to do it in their system. And then so I fortunately, I went straight across the road to the competitor and they knew they just happened to have the business banker in the right. branch that day and I got it solved. But I, I, I talk to other business owners about this and they all have the same. And this is not that uncommon to have that structure. Sure. And I, unfortunately, I was the only shareholder at the time, so it was even easier for me. But so many businesses are in that bucket where they're just treated like, oh, no, that's different or that's unique. or I don't understand this. That's not me. You need to go over there for that. And it's going to be on that day and you'll hear in a few weeks. Contrast that to judo, if you can. What would be the experience that someone like me going into to speak to someone at judo mm-hmm. or they come into them coming to me mm-hmm. how would that be different uh well i go back to those four c's mm. right and that you build a picture the banker builds a picture through conversation with you about everything from the structure that you know is the originating vehicle or right where you're going to be borrowing into your experience, your track record, your perspectives on the business going forward, what you see is the opportunities, what's your current cash flow, what's your projections, how's your financial model look, you know, how much capital have you put in. It's it's a holistic conversation that takes into account all of the idiosyncrasies of you as a customer, mm. right, and what you want and what you aspire to and what you worry about. Um, it's whether it's a you know, a trust structure that sits on the top or whether it's an unusual cash flow over time that's reflective of the industry you want to, you know, you want to grow in. All of those things can be taken into account, right? It is a truly bespoke approach to you as the small business owner, founder, leader. Um, and that contrasts enormously to the major banks who have continued over the last 15 to 20 years to try and industrialise their offering and that fundamentally that industrialization is about pulling costs out because mm. they're largely ex-growth. Pulling costs out, bankers having to cover two to three times as many customers that are looking for ways to really simplify the way those um, applications are made, i.e. how much is your house worth? Yeah. I don't. You know, I can't take into account that there's a an unusual cash flow or that there's an unusual ownership structure, etc. Uh, it's industri- the industrialization has meant that all of that capacity to tailor things has largely exited the industry. And unless you fit the cookie cutter model that they have, it's really difficult. Mm. Now, this is where the cultural aspects become really interesting, right? Because mm. everyone would know. If- just by walking into a bank, how compliance, the regulatory regime, you see it on the news even, 
how tight that is. Someone that's from financial services, I get it. Yeah. Um, and this is a lesson not just for people in finance, but it's at the because it's at the extreme end of the compliance regime. How did you set about empowering the business banker to make decisions while also bearing in mind the risk frameworks and the the regulatory environment? The mm-hmm. I guess the wanting to be inflexible at times but flexible at other times how do you ensure that your people are doing the right things while also feel like they can make those decisions so there's two parts to the answer so the first at the macro level um, there's a great book that we encourage all of our employees to read mm-hmm. called zero to one oh yeah uh, and um, by peter teal and one of the things that he says in that book is no company has a culture, every company is a culture, which I think is incredibly profound and absolutely accurate. That if I think, you know, if I ask you, you know, if you reflect on the culture of organisations that you worked in previously, you know, your natural tendency is to go, well, what did they do? How did they behave? Yeah. What were the things that happened in that, you know, when I spoke up, did I get shot <laughs> or was it safe to speak up? Did things happen quickly uh, or did they get lost in a bureaucracy? Did I have the power to make decisions or not Not really? And so on and so on and so on and so on. And we were both uh, great believers in the unique opportunity we had in founding Judo to hand-build that culture, uh, to really craft a culture um, and to use our internal metaphor while the concrete was drying you know because there is a point at which the cultural concrete in the company dries and is largely set mm. and no matter who comes and goes it remains the same so we were very conscious of um, putting in place many 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 things that collectively defined the way the company operated and therefore the culture, right? Not saying, you know, culture is not what you put on the back of the lift that says we are this and mm. we are that or, you know, give you key rings that say just to remind you of what the culture of the company is. It's all of the little things that you do that shape the behaviour of everybody in the company and how they relate to each other and how they relate to customers and that gradually when that becomes uh, set, so to speak, that's who you are. That's what your culture is. And it's largely difficult to then change it. To the second part of your question, which was about risk. So the culture is enshrining risk at every level, right? Everybody is a risk manager within the company. And that begins, you know, at a technical level when to join the company, you know, you do a three-hour exam, which is to assess your technical skills, uh, it's a credit case study and it says, you know, how would you respond if this was the request of you? Right? How would you analyse? How would you structure? Uh, and that there are different ways to do those things, right? And what we're looking for is clear evidence of capability, you know, assessment uh, and technical capability. But then there's also other elements, you know, we're looking for when we interview people, which is, for example, capacity to deal with ambiguity. And it was one of the great pieces, super pieces of advice we were given very early on by the challenger banks in the UK and the private equity firms that backed them is find people that are able to deal with ambiguity. Everybody will self-nominate as able to deal with mm. ambiguity, but actually many can't. How did you, how did you do that? Um, you, it's literally situational. You're, you're sitting in an interview and you're, you're asking for previous experiences, you're asking for evidence of where people have acted under their, under their own initiative, where they've taken the lead and you know, made decisions off their own bat, which is what we wanted. Mm. Um, but to some extent, you don't always get it right. You know, there's also, you know, you can bring people in and they kind of go, well, where's the rule book? And you go, well, actually, you're the one empowered to make the decision, make the right decision. Um, but that, you know, back to the point about risk, you know, enshrining a risk framework right through the organisation, 
um, hiring well, building, you know, hiring for technical capability, empowering decision making, uh, having a very strong relationship between the risk departments, uh, you know, the second line risk as we call it, uh, and the bankers and having very clear risk management frameworks at the top that everybody understands, that everybody is completely educated in and operates under. So it's really a top to bottom thing. But the most important part of that goes back to the beginning of your question, which is, you know, what's the risk culture of the place, mm. right? How do you, you know, how do you make decisions? How do you work with others to help you make those decisions? Uh, and that we've worked assiduously in that. And we're really happy with how that continues to, to grow. There's a phrase in the book, which is uh, measure twice, cut once, mm. which I I actually first heard from a Bowen's uh, right. video on how to uh, cut eave sheets for when I was going to <laughs> Renault. And it makes a lot of sense because yeah. you don't make mistakes when you just check twice. Can you? How did you implement that idea in the organisation? Um, well, it really, it was... It was very much, it began, I guess, as a concept or as a phrase that we used very early on where, you know, we were making sure that the business plans or all elements of what came together as the full plan for judo was really well thought through and really well critiqued. That, you know, you don't, one of the things about starting a business when you're in your 50s is you drink much less of your own Kool-Aid than you do when you're in your 20s and 30s. You're very open to constructive critique of Mm. it. So you've really made sure that the underlying assumptions behind your business model, that the uh, assumptions, you know, all of the assumptions behind the business model uh, and, you know, all of the key elements of the business plan as it comes together have been critiqued, thought through, challenged and hold up under that that stress test uh, and you know there is we talk in the book about we're not fans of you know that just do it approach um, mm. just do it the positive side is there's lots of passion there and people uh, action oriented want to get and do get on and do stuff but what it very often means is they work under assumptions that are wrong uh, or overly optimistic and you know the the challenges then come back to bite them. Hmm. Do you think there is merit in some instances in environments where it may take a like the the more may say scattergun or action oriented hmm. approach? Say where a business model has assessed that the downside is limited. Yep. So there are maybe instances where it could work. Um, like that kind of fail fast, learn quickly mentality, or do you kind of disregard it, it, that? Well, no. I think if you if you describe that as an exper- as an experimental phase at the beginning to inform, you know, the more substantive business plan that you're going to raise capital on, for mm-hmm. example, fine. You know, I mean, experimenting as part of this is as part of developing a clear proposition, a clear product, a clear process, or other. That's fine. But, you know, when you're going to go out there and raise capital and when you're working with other people's money, you shouldn't be in the experimentation Mm. phase. You should have a very clear, well-laid-out proposition with a stated series of assumptions that they can look at, a financial model that they can look at, Um, you know, knowing that assumptions can always be wrong, right? But, um, no, I think particularly if you're raising large amounts of capital, it's incumbent on you to actually have a very clear proposition, stated assumptions and um, forward outlook. Mm. Speaking of um, the idea of planning and business and deep research before mm-hmm. you execute, in the earliest days, how did you determine who you needed where and when? So you mean in terms of the employees or in terms of the investors or in your in your employee base? Yep. So who did you need in management? What roles would you take, mm-hmm. for example? Mm-hmm. Um, well, we 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 basically planned it out. I mean, we had, you know, we worked on a three and five year business plan as to 
all elements of the growth of the business. That's the, the growth in the employee numbers, the growth in the capital required, growth in funding required, all the licensing required and so forth. So, you know, we spent a solid year building out that picture um, before we before we started getting into sort of substantive recruitment. Now, having said that, you know, in that first year, we brought, um, we, we approached eight people to come and join the leadership team and we got seven of those that we approached, which we were mm. completely delighted with. And we and that team, that, that initial team, um, really then built out, you know, that full roadmap for the company. Mm. Uh, so, interesting. When so. we were raising capital, when we were raising capital, you know, there was a here's what the organisational structure will look like, right? Here's the risk structure. Here's the operational structure. Here's the relationship banking structure. You know, here's the CFO role and so forth. So, it was well planned. It wasn't just us that did that. You know, I mean, we very early on in our growth brought it. You know, an absolutely first class team together around us, and that in many ways, was kind of one of the real drivers of Judo's ultimate success, was being able to attract such high-caliber people in the very early days to help us build it. I'd like to pop the hood on that a little bit and mm. go a little bit deeper. Um, one of the things that I look at when I look at people in business, small businesses and new businesses, uh, and this is more a heuristic thing, mm -hmm. which is that typically there seems to be an association between those who follow others into a business and success in that business. Of course, it's probably maybe a weak correlation, but I'm curious why seven of those eight people came with you or came across and how you think things might've been different if they didn't. Um, well, we handpicked those seven, right? Well, we handpicked the eight that we approached um, I don't know. I mean, I think, you know, probably the per the first question you asked, you know, why do people join? And I think the answer is specific to each of them. Each case is different. Um, you know, a lot of them, all of them indeed, were very experienced people. So in many, you know, maybe, maybe a bit younger than us, but probably in some cases not. Uh, that we'd known for a long time, that we'd seen operating, you know, as a, a real A-grade player in other organisations. And so we handpicked them and I think we spent quite a lot of time. It wasn't just one meeting, right? I mean, you you introduce the concept, you talk to people about it and over time you attract them across because you can build a clear picture of what you think you can achieve and I think probably more so than anything else that there was also a shared vision. Mm. You know, those that came over could see what we saw in terms of the huge market failure in addressing SME banking by the major banks, the huge opportunity that that presented and a real resonance with the proposition that we were putting together, which was going back to relationship banking as it used to be done to your point, underpinned by cutting-edge tech, but back to relationship banking. All of those things appealed. Uh, and, you know, ultimately, we were successful in getting them across. So it's kind of that vision that binds them. Mm. Are you a believer in the idea of just get great people in the room and it, is it normally a good thing? Like, it's probabilistically, it might be a success. Are you a believer in that? Or do you think there's much more... That needs to be wrapped around that you've got vision mm -hmm. i'm just trying to think like some people very strongly disagree with this idea that you can just put great people in a room and they'll do something impressive so the answer is if i can give you a metaphor if you think about a big circus tent right there's one huge pole that's in the middle that holds it up that's your people mm. um, now you need others to hold it out to bring the volume into the space Right, so it's not just that, but that to me is the primary thing. We often talk about um, this concept of if you said A times B equals C and you said C is the outcome, and that could be a financial outcome, it could be a customer outcome, 
and you said B is the potential of the people that you have, right, to your point, mm-hmm. those quality people. And you said, but A, I think A is the culture, right? So you can have a progressive, collaborative, challenging, energised, entrepreneurial culture, and that can be a multiplier of two. So two times that great group of people equals a better outcome. Mm. If you have a dysfunctional or non-communicative or partisan culture, that can be 0.5. So you can have multipliers of your organisational potential and you can have diluters of it. Now, of course, you can substitute A for, for, for different things. You can talk about you know, the quality of the opportunity in front of you. If it's, a, if it's an opportunity that's just never going to fly, it doesn't matter how good your people are, mm. really. They'll do the best you can with that hand of cards. But So, yes, there are other things you can substitute in there. But for me, you know, that B, that centrepiece, is, or the centre the center pole of the circus tent is mm. the calibre of your people. The A can be the quality of the idea, the culture within which they operate, the amount of capital that there is available to prosecute your vision and so forth. But um, mm. hopefully that answers it. I, I really like that metaphor. I haven't heard it before. So that's um, that's great. Uh, I've got one more kind of meaty question to tack on the end here. It's not this question, actually, which I just thought of. Why did you call it Black Belt? Um, well, it's a, re- a reference back to judo, mm. right? I mean, when we wrote the first business plan or draft info memo mm. for judo, we gave it to a very close friend of ours who was a, an ex-McKinsey guy and said, read this, see what you think. And he came back and said, oh, it's a judo strategy. And we both went, what's that? Mm. Uh, and he gave us a, a link to go and have a look. Uh, and it's basically a piece of academic work that really ties the principles of judo, the martial art, to business. So, for example, you know, you choose the battles that you you want to get engaged in, how to use the weight of your opponent against themselves, all of those kinds of things. And what was originally Project Greengate, so given that was the pub that we <laughs> conceived of it, uh, which became judo, because we, you know. Um, Greengate was never going to fly as the long-term name. Um, so we named it Judo after that Judo strategy. And we just felt, and the publisher of the book said, you know, this would be a great this would be a great name for the book. It's got a clear reference back to the martial art itself. Uh, and, you know, we have within the company, we have white belts and green belts and yellow belts and so forth, hmm. depending on your experience. Mm, great. So the question that I did want to ask mm. is, uh, and I mentioned this in an email to page 128, there's this uh, fantastic list of mm. principles for leadership. And we don't need to go through all of them, even just just generally speaking. I'd encourage anyone to pick up the book if yeah. you're in a small, medium-sized business to just read this list and have this handy because mm. I think this applies to any business in any type of environment. That's myself personally. What do you think just – off the top of your head, are the principles that define good leadership? Um, well, what we tried to do in the book was to pull that apart. Right? Mm. I don't think there are, I think, you know, there's a great saying that to every complex question, there's a simple answer that's wrong. Hmm. You know, uh, and I think leadership is many, many, many different things. In the in the realms of building a company, you know, beginning or setting off on an entrepreneurial endeavour, what we tried to do on page 128 was to kind of synthesise the key learnings, leadership learnings that we had in framing it, right, framing it and executing it from day one. Uh, and, you know, that was about, in, in the same way that people were incredibly generous with us, in the founding years of judo where they'd they'd done the same thing as we'd done, we were doing in the UK in a very similar market. And they talked to us about what they'd succeeded in, what pitfalls they had faced into. Uh, And there was nothing in it for them, actually. They just saw us as kindred spirits Mm. 
in Australia uh, and were incredibly generous and what they and so much of the advice they gave us was absolute gold. And so what we wanted to do with the book was to really say in the real world, in the practical situations we've been through, what did we really learn about you know building a company in this space? What is required of leadership in the building of that company and the setting up of that company and the operation of that company? And you know, it's through the book, right? Mm. What we tried to do is to distill it down to you know one series of um, ten different kind of leadership traits. Um, but uh, you know, one of the uh, one of the uh, nice testimonials we have in there is from one of the professors of uh, in the business school at Sydney. He said, "Look, oh, actually, maybe it's from the London Business School. One of the two said, look, you may be tempted to turn straight to Chapter 8 and read the 10 key lessons. <laughs> Don't, right? Because actually there's a real journey there uh, and enjoy the journey and then kind of get to the end and say, you know, here is how we would mm. um, pull out of that whole journey the key things that you need to be, you know, you, you, you need to be conscious of or it helps to be conscious of as you go on that journey. It's such a special thing. I always count my blessings, David, that I get to speak to people like yourself because you've done all this work. You put it in a book as well, mm. um, but then you get to spend an hour. Well, I get to spend an hour with you the other way around, and it's it's just a fantastic opportunity for people who are business-minded, running a business, even just want to understand how the world works, how teams operate, Yeah, uh, which is such a complex thing because it's there's multiple agents. It's in an environment that seems to change it's fluid through time yes and so to be able to have kind of like a manual of how you see the world and how it played out for you is so incredibly valuable for people so i'd encourage anyone to pick up the book it's called black belt that's by joseph and david uh, joseph is going to appear on this series yeah in a couple of weeks right which i'm excited to do because i'm hoping there will be contrast but many similarities as well and for listeners who are listening to these back to back i know i'm going to go back and listen to this one is to understand those and also hear how the two of you are joined at the hip in some ways mm. but also explain things in other ways and in the meantime i would encourage anyone to pick up this book order it from amazon wherever you want to get it from um, fantastic book australian written um, with australian experience which is wonderful so I do really appreciate you taking the time to join me on the show. I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, no, great conversation. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Australian Business Podcast. I think this series is best served with my free business course on RASC education. My free course includes all of my notes, templates, employment guides, legal documents, marketing strategies, software recommendation, and ideas for starting and running a small business. If you're a small business owner or an expert like an accountant, lawyer, investor, or entrepreneur, I want to hear from you. I'm not 100% sure what we're going to do with this podcast series, so I'm looking for sponsors as well as potential co-hosts, and of course, I'm eager to invest in businesses run by talented people. If you're looking for a supporter or advisor, a silent partner, or even an investor to support your growth, I can help. Please contact me via the RASC website. Finally, if this podcast or the course helps you, I only ask that you please help me by sharing it with one friend, colleague, or family member who runs a business. Thanks for listening.